Welcome to Sermon Seasonings, the podcast of Christchurch Claysville, where we look in more depth at the passages that we were exploring on Sunday. Passages, because there were six of them. Um, I'm Dave. And I'm Mandy. On Sunday, Dave was back and we looked at that large section of chapters 42 through to 47. We saw Joseph's brothers come to Egypt. He recognises them, but they don't recognise him. But what unfolds in these chapters is a great story of reconciliation, where lives that have been separated by sin are brought together through the power and wisdom of our loving God. Thanks so much for opening God's Word for us, Dave. It was really, really interesting to explore those um, that great, great story um, mm. in that sort of back half of the of the, the Joseph thing. It's pretty exciting. I thought we'd do a couple of things today. Um, so first of all, we'll do some. There were six chapters to cover. We couldn't really do the deep dive into as much of it as we would have liked to. So we're going to address some additional observations from the text that are some of them are kind of curious and other ones I think are, are quite quite profound. Um, we're going to think what was God doing? Uh, yeah. What was God's capital P plan? And then we're going to um, deal with some of the questions that have been sent through, which again, always always helpful to send those through because um, they give us material, but also they help us to go, mm, yeah, what is the story with that? And so we followed some of those ones up, including reflecting upon how forgiveness and reconciliation work. So that's what we'll get up to today. Excellent. So we're going to kick off with what are some of the additional observations from the text, Dave? Okay, the first one is how old was Benjamin? I grew up looking at children's Bibles and things like that and you always think about Benjamin as being this little boy and when when Judah talks about Benjamin trying to be said, he keeps calling him the boy, the boy, the boy, the boy, the boy. And the word for the boy means a boy. Right. It means someone who's, you know, like a primary school age boy. Yeah. So is that Benjamin? Well, here's the thing. Let's do some maths. Joseph um, was 17 when the whole Joseph story starts and he yep. gets sent down to, and he gets traded off to send down to Egypt. Now, at that stage, his mother has already died. His mother had given birth to Benjamin in her death. That's what, why yep. she died. That's why Rachel died. So, so um, Benjamin's already alive. Joseph is 17 and he gets sent off down into Egypt. We next get told that he's 30 when he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Mm. So that means he's been in Egypt as a slave and as a prisoner for 13 years. years. Right. So that means that that Benjamin is at least 13. Mm. Okay. Then what did Joseph disclose to Pharaoh? Well, that there's going to be two periods. There's going to be seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. Mm. When Joseph's brothers turn up, they're two years into the famine part. So that's seven plus two. Seven so that's, plus two, nine, that's nine years. Nine years plus, so, the, plus 13. the thirteen. So he's at least twenty-one. Twenty-two. 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 So uh, at the very minimum, Benjamin is a twenty-two-year-old, and that is if Rachel died the day that Joseph went around talk, talking about his dreams. Now, there's another hint in there because when Joseph, uh, when when Benjamin first turns up with the rest of the brothers mm. and bows before Joseph, remember the second time when they visit, mm. Joseph recognises Yeah. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. And then there's the specific bit, which I can't. We see it in chapter 43, verse 29. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, 
is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. I think that that text suggests that he saw Benjamin recognising Benjamin and says, oh, is this your other son, your your other brother, Benjamin? Mm. And then he looks at him again um, and and looked for a place to weep at the sight of his brother, which suggests that when he saw Benjamin, he recognised Benjamin. Mm. And you get the impression when Benjamin hugs him back a bit later on that Benjamin kind of knew who Joseph was as well, which says that probably Benjamin was a boy Mm. when Joseph was sold off into slavery. And so that makes him pretty close to 30. So it's just one of those things where your your place, you know, the youngest child in a family is always the baby. Well, if you're the youngest with 12 brothers, then, you know, you're you're the boy. And you're stuck with the label, the boy, and you're viewed as being dad's that their memory of you is always you growing up because they were adults when they did it. So there we go. So Joseph, if, if, you've, if you've got a, a, a children's Bible with Benjamin as a boy, it's wrong. <laughs> uh, dear, so what else? Is there anything else significant? Well, I that think we there's see? another bit that's around a similar sort of area in chapter 43 verses 32 to 34. It's interesting that um, Joseph, even in some of the schemes that he sets up for his brothers – there are connections that seem to match what, how they had treated him. And it's like he's kind of is sending them a message. Well, the question is how obviously is he trying to send them the message? And is there at some point where he wants them or is almost trying to see if they will pick up who he is? And I mm-hmm. think there are hints. And one of them is 43, 32 to 34. Do you want to read that for us? They served him, Joseph, by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that's detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's, so they feasted and drank freely with him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's... That's way too much to be a coincidence to get 11 brothers. You're not going to fluke that, right? And the thing is the text draws our attention to the fact that the brothers noticed it and were astounded by it. So they're going, how is it that this guy has managed to seat all of us in age order? Now remember, because Benjamin isn't a 10-year-old but a likely a 30-year-old, they're all grown men mm. um, and probably within you know relatively sort of over a decade or two in terms of age gap. And so, but he manages to get it all right. And there's a sense of who can do that? Mm. Who might be able to get your brothers in age order, right? Mm. Um, and then you get the last bit where when he feeds everyone, he gives the youngest, the other, the brother of his, his mother, mother the, the, son, the, son, the other son of his mother, his brother by the same mother, a five times portion. And, and there's a sense where... This guy's really, really not just a double portion, five times. It's mm. an over-the-top um, honouring of the youngest. And again, so it's like he's going. Are you picking it up? Mm. The very fact that he's so readily, he, he, it's not long before he, in in the same meal he does reveal who he is. Mm. That he's kind of going. He wants them. He wants the family to know him. He yep. wants 
is revealing whether he's doing it deliberately or whether he's subconsciously just arranging them up. He he there's a, a desire for the family to see who he is, to be known. And that's that's the nature of relationships, isn't it? To to go, I want you to know who I am. I want I want us to be us again. Yeah. So it's, it's it's quite a beautiful little window. Yeah. And then the last insight was really it was about the brothers, uh, or yep. two of the brothers again, wasn't it? Yeah. So one of the things we didn't get to look through on Sunday, we did get to look at one aspect of Judah, Judah's repentance. But what we also see is a, is a transitioning of his role and, and him moving into the role of eldest. Mm-hmm. So back when Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, there's two brothers that sort of stand up for Joseph. The first one is Reuben. He already is, he knows he's the eldest. Mm. He sort of thinks, oh, dad's going to kill me over this one. And so he's the one who comes up with a plan to just throw him down the well because he fully plans to go and get him later. Mm. But he messes up. He's wandering off somewhere. And by the time he comes back, Joseph's sold in slavery. But the next one to speak is Judah. Mm. And he's the one who also sort of saves Joseph. He says, let, let's not let his blood be on our hands. Let's make some money out of him and sell him off into slavery. Let's let's at least give him a life. Yeah. And so you've got Judah stepping in in that sort of saving Joseph sort mm. of role. So you've got these two brothers stepping in to save Joseph. Yeah. Well, now in this in this time we see Reuben and Joseph and Judah again. So the first time when they turn up, um, it's Reuben who's on view. So do you want to read us verse twenty two? Yep. Shall I start from twenty one? Yeah, sure. So um, they're there and the brothers say to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That is why distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. They did not realise that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. And then Joseph, as you might, turns away and, and weeps at the end of that. So this is that that scene where he, he says, you're all spies, go back and get your brother. Mm. Um, and yet, is, isn't it amazing how near the surface their guilty conscience mm. is over what they did to Joseph, such that they're going, this is this is the work of God, this is the, this is providence working against mm. us. We are suffering because of the suffering. And they even bring up, mm. notice that bit, they bring up the fact that yep. Joseph was pleading for his life mm. and now our our suffering, our, our distress is because we willingly looked at his... And there's this yep. seeing a match here. Mm. Um, and then but you, then you get Reuben kind of going, I told you so. Yep. Um, again, he straight away recognises that this is some sort of act of judgment. Yep. But he said, this, this is an accounting, this is a reckoning. Mm. And, and so he steps into that role. But yep. then he comes up again. So again, he's the main sort of leader of the brothers figure in this story. So now verses 35 to 37, they're uh, back with Jacob. Yep. When the, they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, you've deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, my son will not go down with you. His brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you will bring my grey hair down to the grave in sorrow. So Reuben says, look, leave, leave 
Leave him. I'll look after him. I'll be the guarantee. And I think he thinks really were you that last time. Mm. Um, and uh, and but so you, again, you see that idea of Ruben stepping in, mm. saying, "Look, I'll do it." He comes up with the scheme. Look, you can have my sons if if I don't bring back your pretty, sons. Your son. Your son. Pretty, pretty sort of random. Another interesting aside on the way through there is that now that they found the silver in their sacks, uh, he already considers Simeon to be gone. Mm. My my Joseph's gone. Simeon's gone. Um, that's yeah. it. You're not getting. You're not getting Benjamin. So that's that's Reuben. Yeah. Attempts to sort of take the take the lead. Attempts to preserve um, Benjamin and guarantee him, but it's not accepted. Well, they get hungry, right? And and so they're still up in in Canaan, and they get hungry, and then uh, they work out we can't avoid this any longer. And then somebody else steps in. So this is Judah's time to shine. So you want to read verses three and five, three to five. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. So now Judah seems to be taking a mm. spokesperson role. But what we'll see is that actually now through for the rest of the time, it's Judah. Mm. Reuben doesn't turn up. Yeah, Judah steps into Israel's role. Um, and so then he speaks up again in verse 8. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. So before, it was Reuben that put surety down for Benjamin's mm. safety. Um, and now when the time actually comes to go down there with Benjamin, Reuben's nowhere to be seen and, and he, he doesn't say anything. But but Judah steps in. Um, interestingly, though, Judah doesn't sit there and go, listen, take, take my sons and kill them mm. if you have to, which again is a grotesque thing mm. for Reuben to offer. He says, no, it's on me. Yeah. Um, if I can't bring Benjamin back, hold it against me. He really takes personal responsibility um, for, for this, this venture down to get food and even says, listen, there is an urgency here. We could have done this twice already. So he, he kind of is really stepping into that um, role of leadership that Reuben has really kind of failed in. And then that continues when they get down, down to Egypt. So if you have a look over at... Um, at chapter forty-four, for instance, at uh, at verses they they've the they find the cup in Benjamin's sack, and um and so then we read chapter forty-four, verse fourteen. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in. Okay, they- so just stop there for a second. Notice that how they're described: Judah and his brothers. Mm. So it, it's not. He, he he is like you might say Peter and the disciples. Mm. We're saying Judah and his brothers. He is quite clearly. The guy. So keep going. They threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you've done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say, my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. So again, he is the spokesman for the whole group. 
Um, and he confesses on behalf of the whole group. It's, it's important we notice that when he said, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. They've opened up a sack and they found a, a, a apparently stolen goblet in Benjamin's sack. But he doesn't, this servant's guilt is not singular, it's plural. He's saying this whole circumstance has is God exposing our guilt. And it's quite clear that he, he understands by that their guilt for what they had done to Joseph. That that this is this is divine justice for them selling Joseph mm. into slavery. Um, this isn't this isn't about Benjamin. Yep. This is about us, and and we and and we have no claim to innocence. They didn't steal a cup, mm. but he still confesses their guilt because at his heart we were guilty of a far greater crime that God clearly knows about. Mm. So you see this real movement from the guy who was willing to sell his brother off into slavery, to one who's willing to step in to become a slave himself, to confess guilt and and take this role of leadership amongst the brothers. And so when we get to this week's passage that we're going to look at on Sunday, it should be no surprise that Judah is the is the who's now really acting like the eldest and like the firstborn is given the role, the blessing of authority and rule in the descendants of Jacob. So that brings to an end our first section and then we're going to move along to the second section. So here's a, here's a key question. Um, at the end of uh, the whole, this great story about Joseph, you've got Joseph going, look, this was all God's plan. You meant it to badly. God meant it for good. Uh, he's actually working a great plan of salvation here and, um, and, and you could at a surface level go, oh, that is just brilliant. God's foreknowledge. He knew that there would be seven years of abundance. He knew that there would be seven years of famine after that. And so what he does is he strategically places Joseph down there in the land, ready to be able to um, come up, interpret you know, Pharaoh's dream for him, which God gave him, so that he could then get everything ready and so that instead of starving to death in Canaan, they could all be brought back into Egypt and be looked after. And I go, isn't God brilliant? Uh, however, was that the plan of God? Is that actually what God was doing? Um, because if you think about it this way, if God knew that he was this famine that he is in control of and that he sent and that he planned was going to come, why do they have to? Why does he have to plant um, Joseph down in Egypt? He's the one who sends the rain. Why couldn't he have just had a bunch of clouds just? rain nice and neatly over the top of their tents over in Canaan. Why does it have to happen this way? And that's got a bigger answer than just the providence of God. It's not just the providence of God that the people would be saved from hunger because he could have done that in Canaan. Mm. So there is a bigger issue to hear. So um, let's have a look at uh, chapter 45, verse 7, which is one of the the key verses that we need to look at here. This is where, um, where Joseph actually explains to his brothers what's going on. So uh, Joseph says, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Okay. So to preserve a remnant from you on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So is them ending up in Egypt with food to eat a great deliverance. Or does that sound like it's a bit... That sounds like a pretty pathetic it's a, it's fulfilment a, it's a, it's of a, that idea. It's a good deal. Like, don't 
you know, and, and they all get brought to, and they get the land provided, the land of Goshen, and that's really nice, but it's, it's big language. And what about to preserve a remnant? They all end up coming down. The, the, the word remnant this is the first time it turns up in the Bible. And the word remnant has a very, very mm. important um, theological connection to it throughout the Old Testament. This is the, 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 um, the group of people that God will save out of a larger group mm. of people from trial and tribulation. So, so even though remnant might presuppose we're talking about the leftovers, a small bunch, it is far more connected to what their circumstance is. Mm. So God is preserving a remnant for them. Is it? It's it's actually preserving them for a great deliverance. Mm. Now, if you're looking at the Old Testament, you say, "What is the great deliverance in the Old Testament?" Well, it comes in the next book, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's it's not so much them being saved from this famine. Yes, it's 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 that God is saving them. And he is so he is saving them from the famine, but he's mm. saving them from the famine in Egypt, mm. and that's actually quite important. Now, if you read verse forty-six, verses one to four, God tells us what he's going to do in Egypt. So this is where um, uh, Jacob is on his way back to Egypt. He um, offers a sacrifice to God at Beersheba, and then in verses one to four, uh, or probably two to four at this point, God actually um, speaks to him in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. So who is being brought back again? Is it on one level you could go, well, Jacob's body gets brought back. Um, but I will be with you down there, mm. and I'll bring. With, and Jacob is more than just Jacob. Jacob yep. is Israel. Israel, and you can't help but read. I will make you into a great nation. Nation. Yeah. Hang on a second. Where have we heard God talking to His people and calling them and making promises about there being a great nation? So let's pull on that thread. Obviously, there you go back to Genesis twelve and the great promise to Abraham. And then he's told that he's led to the promised land. He said, I'll go to the land, I'll call you, I'll make you into a great nation, I'll bless you, those who bless you will bless you, uh, curse, curse, bless that sort you. of thing. Yep. And then he takes him into the land and then, he, in, and then later in chapter 12 he says, all of this land I'm going to give to you. And then in chapter 15 we get to the point where um, Abraham is sort of going, eh, when's, when's this going to happen? <laughs> so I've got it um, do you want to read verses 8 to 8 to, um, uh, no, eight to 16? Let's oh. read the whole lot. Oh, let's go. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however... 
will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Okay, so now let's draw some of these threads together. Remember, this is the story of Genesis. Mm. Um, and so we've already had these trails laid before us um, in, in the promises of Abraham. So what we've got here is that God says to Jacob, I'm going to make you into a great nation down there. Don't be afraid to leave. So don't. this is the land I promised you but you don't need to be afraid of leaving the land I promised you to go down to Egypt because I'm actually going to continue to fulfill my promises with mm. you down there. Yep. Now, in other words, this is as much getting Jacob out of Canaan. Yep. Now, you might go, why does God want to get Jacob out of Canaan? Why can't he grow him into a great nation in Canaan? I mean, he can grow him into a great nation But he's Canaan. not choosing to do that. No. And so we, we, we've got a hint there, but, um, well, let's just say what it is, because the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Mm. Uh, they need to be out of the land, um, still honouring the promises, so I'll grow you, but I need you out of the land because I need to build you as a nation and I've got another thing I've got to do, the people that are currently in the land that you're living beside in your tents, um, they need to get to the point where their wickedness is such that they are driven out, mm. where I can send you in and clean them out and work justice by doing that. Mm. So rather than you just get big enough next to them all that you eventually just smother them out, no, I'm going to grow you into a, na into a nation somewhere else so that I can take you back there. Mm. And when I take you back there, the sin of the Amorites, the people of the land of Canaan, it's reached its full measure and I want you to clear them out and you take the land that I mm. promised you. Because this is the answer that Abram's promised, the promise to Abram, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Mm. And yep. he tells them this is the plan. And even within that plan, you also see that they go from being freely in the promise in the land of Canaan that God has said that they are to be in and they are then taken into slavery and in part land, of yeah. mm. in another land and part of the way that this great rescue of them is going to happen will be to free them from that slavery and then bring them into this land where they will then conquer. So we've had seeds that this might be taking place even in the Joseph narrative. So remember twice twice we've been told that there's it might seem like happy days with Joseph and Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh just thinks Joseph Joseph's the bee's knees, but he knows he's a Hebrew. And yet, what do we hear from Joseph's own mouth a couple of times? You need to go, you need to tell Pharaoh that you're shepherds because the Egyptians detest shepherds. They find mm. them abominable. And so they want you to in a land where they're not growing crops. Yeah. So put them in the land of Goshen. Um, and then there's another bit where when they're having the meal and Joseph eats separately, notice that? Yeah. Eats separately from his the Egyptians there because Joseph is a Hebrew True. and he's separate as well from, from the other Hebrews yeah. because they're the, they're the guests and that is because Egyptians won't eat with Hebrews because they are mm. abominable. Yeah. So you're getting this this is this, there's some a seed of things. You've got this slavery language that there's there's Simeon mm. as a slave, we'll trade ourselves as slaves. There's Joseph as being a slave. So this language of slavery, this language of captivity and and hostility is there even in the time when Egypt seems to be like a safe place. Mm. And and just like he promises to Abraham, he also does for for Jacob. Jacob gets to live and enjoy the good thing and go back to a place in in, in peace. Um, but that will not be true for the rest of the generations. So now it makes you go back to 
the the perhaps what God meant in giving jo- Joseph the words to say, mm. "I will deliver you through a great mm. deliverance," um, and that it is Joseph might have thought the great deliverance is I've got you all managed to get I've managed to get you all here so that you mm. can all survive this famine, but I think um, as we look at the overall arc of what. Genesis is teaching us and has already told us all the way back mm. in chapter 15 is that there is a great deliverance that is still to come that God is mm. is working to do. Yes. So that's God's capital P plan, not just, oh, give my people some food. So it's uh, which shouldn't surprise us given we've read the rest of Genesis so far. So moving now into the last section where we look at some of the questions that came through. So yeah. we had three great questions that came through. Uh, the first question asks, well, so did the brothers tell Jacob what that actually done to Joseph all those years ago? What do you reckon? Yeah. Now, we, um, we did some guesswork first and we thought, well, I didn't what do you what do you've told them? You're thinking, well, if they told Jacob, they could be putting any blessing that they might have mm. into risk. You go, you did what? Um, are you kidding me? Um, so mm. you could, you could kind of speculate a little bit mm. about whether they would have whether it would have been smart to tell him, whether it wouldn't have been smart to tell him. Other, and 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 we can't think of a bit where they said, oh, by the way, this is this what, is we, what did. we did. Sorry. So 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 we think. Well, are we just. Are we just left there to guess and see? Do we get any hints that mm. that, that Jacob knows what's going on? And um, and so you think, well, we should probably find out. Let's mm. let's have a look at the text. So we're going to trace the story. So let's first of all look at chapter forty-five, verse four, um, where where we get Joseph confronting them. Mm. So Joseph says to his brothers, "Come close to me." When they'd done so, he said, "I'm your brother Joseph." the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Okay, so that's that's Joseph saying, look, yes, it's me. I'm Joseph, and yes, you did sell me into slavery, yeah. and I know that, but this is what God was on about. So that's what Joseph says. Now, when they go home after Joseph has told them that, and they go back up to get Jacob, uh, let's read what they say then. So chapter 45, verses 26 and 27. So they told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's ruler of Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they had told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Okay, now we don't get too much there, um, but you do wonder what did it mean when they said, they told him everything that Joseph had said to them because we just read what Joseph said to them and one of the things that Joseph said to them, I'm Joseph who you sold into slavery. And you can sort of imagine them going, hey, do you want the good news? Or the news. Or the good news is Joseph is alive, yay. Um, Yeah, we uh, sold him into slavery, but he's going to provide for us. Because is it likely that Jacob's going to go, what do you mean he's alive? How, how, how could he be alive? You you gave me his his Mm. cloth. Well, no, we just just bumped into him and who knew? Um. Or, but the text tells us that they told him what Joseph said to them. 
And one thing that Joseph said to him was, you lot, am I? So did they give that little bit of detail? Ooh, the mystery thickens. Well, we've got to go ahead a couple of chapters now. Now, and don't steal all of Tony's we're, thunder we're for a couple st- of weeks' time. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, Tony's going to be preaching um, chapter 50. But if we do look at chapter 50, verses 15 to 17, and we'll just limit it to that because so that um, Tony's got some more juicy stuff to talk about. But this is interesting. So if you're wanting to know, did... Joseph's brothers tell Jacob that they had sold Joseph into slavery. Have a listen to this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Mm. Well, is that the smoking gun? To be honest, I think it is. Um, it could be that they're just... So, so basically the story is, is that when after Jacob dies, they sort of think, well, maybe Joseph was just being nice to us while Jacob was around because... You know, if he's going to be upset at one of his sons dying, he's going to be upset at the rest of us, right? So, so you know, that they're lying about it. But there's no reason that, to think that they're lying about it. Um, that they're actually saying they did fess up mm. to Joseph, uh, sorry, to Jacob, and, and Jacob thought, I need to, I need to plant a bit of a message here that says, don't hold this against them afterwards. There's a, a wonderful outflow of that. But Tony can tell you that, and I don't want to steal his thunder. So the answer to the question is, yeah, they probably, probably did, did tell Jacob that they had sold Joseph into slavery, and that's mm. pretty interesting. Excellent. So our second question then asks um, about the names. Uh, so Jacob is known as Jacob, and he's also known as Israel because uh, he's been renamed. Is there any significance in when he's called Jacob and when he's called Israel? Now, it's a really good question because we know that there is a little bit of that when it comes to whether we read the Lord or we read God. You know, God being the more generic description of God as deity um, and the Lord or Yahweh really referring to God's covenant relationship. And so while it doesn't always do this, when you hear about the Lord, you, you, you're kind of remembering this is the God who made promises to Israel. Mm. Lord, right? And so so what's in a name? Well, it kind of does matter at that point. So the question could be, well, does that the work work the same way with Israel and Jacob? Now, the first question might go on there is, well, how do you work that out? Now, you can do this with a concordance, which is a, a book that kind of lists through words and where they appear in the Bible, right? And normally it's yep. a pretty thick book, um, and that's something you can get. Or you can use some software and do some searching. So that's what we did. We thought yeah. we'd do some searching. So let's search every reference to Israel in Genesis and then look at every reference to Jacob and see if you can get connections between the two. And so and so we, we did that and we got some we got some numbers here. So first of all, um, the name Israel turns up thirty five times in the book of Genesis. Uh, and thirty two times after chapter thirty five verse ten 
which is which I'll read to you. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. And so he named him Israel. Now that's actually the second time. The mm. first time he calls him Israel is after he wrestles with the angel. Um, but then it's after this second time. So we go, all right, once you get the official renaming, uh, when is he called Israel? When's he called Jacob? Now, it's pretty much 50-50. We even drew a graph. Mm. We, 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 we printed off a graph, right? And if you have a look at the graph, it's got little pointy bits when there's a whole lot of references to Israel and a whole lot of references to um, Jacob. And if you lay them over the top of each other, is is really – it doesn't yep. tell you anything. I mean, and there's times when there's things like, I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. So they're yes. used one after the other interchangeably. So the broad thing would be – Jacob and Israel are used interchangeably. Um, now, uh, but if you do read, which we did, um, all of the reference to the Jacob being called by the name Israel, you do get some groupings of them, and this was a helpful way of thinking about it as well. Um, so uh, those groupings often, uh, so b- before genealogies, he's called Israel. Mm-hmm. He might be called Jacob as well, but he's called Israel. Yeah. Um, and he's called, so uh, in, in our section, which is why the question came up, it actually happens a few times where you've got Jacob and Israel um, used together. So in chapter 43, it turns up a fair bit. In chapter 45, it turns up a bit. And in those sections, we were just reading from chapter 46 when God speaks to him. And the, it's interesting, he says, um, God spoke to Israel in a vision at night in chapter 46, verse 2, and said, Jacob, Jacob. Here I am. Mm. So you can see that interchangeability. But he it's addressed as he spoke to Israel. Mm. Now, um, when you analyse all of those references, where it tends to be is that God refers to Jacob as Israel predominantly when his fatherly role over what will be a nation is really what's on yep. view. And so which which makes sense, isn't it? Because in the future like when Genesis was written, they're the nation of Israel. Right? Yep. They yep. take the name of Jacob, but not Jacob. They're not Jacobites. They're the Israelites. And um, and especially in Genesis, Israel is used when with relationship to Egypt. Mm. So when Jacob is about to go to Egypt, or is getting, or, or is being drawn into Egypt. So in those going back to Canaan and talking to Jacob's stories, that is when Jacob is often called Israel, when there is a connection to the land of Egypt, which again leads us to the fact that this back end of Genesis is preparing us also for the Exodus. And so the nation of Israel, the nation that Jacob will be grown into, uh, that will be delivered out of Egypt, is the nation of Israel. And so Jacob as a, as a national figurehead when that's on view, you're going to hear the word Israel a lot more. Mm. Not exclusively, you'll still call him, hear him called Jacob, but Israel's going to be on the view on view when that national figurehead role, mm. particularly in relationship to Egypt. Yeah. So great question, mm. um, and that's what our little bit of research did. Excellent. And so then our third and final question uh, that we're going to look at was really a question that picked up some of the idea about forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, And so the question was, can we reconcile with someone who doesn't genuinely own or acknowledge any wrongdoing? It is a a great question because – and it's a good one to finish on because it it takes us away from the mere – no, I don't want to say mere textual details because they do matter. It's God's word and all that. But but to – 
to what it means and how do we apply it because you do see repentance in Judah, you see forgiveness in, in Joseph and, and it is a powerful theme of this part. Um, one thing we need to do is separate slightly forgiveness from reconciliation. Mm. Now the two are, are very strongly related and, not, and hopefully one will lead to the other um, but they're, they're different. Forgiveness is in your power. You can mm. forgive or you cannot forgive. Reconciliation is a dis- is something that happens to a relationship. Mm. So it becomes plural at that point. And so it's not just what you choose to do. It's it's how the relationship ends up. Mm. And uh, and so the role that the other person plays in the matter is is relevant to whether forgiveness actually leads to reconciliation or doesn't. Mm. And so um so first of all, let's have a think about what the Bible says about forgiveness very, very briefly. Um, but one of the things um, in Matthew 18, verse 35, Jesus is talking a number of levels about relationships that are kind of messy. Mm. And he tells this great big parable about the unmerciful servant, mm. the servant who is forgiven a great debt themselves but then refuses to hold, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, uh, um, will hold a lesser debt against mm. someone. And then the person who he owed the greater debt to finds out about it, throws him into prison and tortures him. Mm. I think it's pretty pretty brutal. And But the conclusion that Jesus makes is in 18 verse 35. Do you want to read that for us, Mandy? So, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So notice that last bit. It's not just forgive one another, mm. forgive your brother or sister. So it goes, all right, I'll forgive you. Forgive your mm. brother and sister from the heart. It doesn't allow much wriggle room, does it? Mm. And yet we see that in Genesis. I mean, that's what Joseph does. Mm. That, that The fact that he wishes them well, that he doesn't want them to argue amongst each other and hold it against them, that he can, he can weep and hug over them afterwards. He's forgiven them from the heart. This is something that he's genuinely let go because it was the will of God and he embraces the relationship again. So what you get there is Joseph's forgiveness and only in chapter 50, by the way, do you truly get reconciliation. Mm. So the forgiveness happened back when Joseph just yeah. decided to give it. But you can see that the brothers, as we just talked about, were sceptical until they're thinking maybe Joseph's just holding off his anger until Jacob's dead. And then, no, really, mm. they're reconciled because the forgiveness was full, was full and genuine. Yeah. So we just so, so if we separate those things, forgiveness is an obligation on every Christian. You can't sit there and remain with an unforgiving heart when you have been forgiven the multitude mm. of sins that every Christian has. No one's pretending it's easy. No one is pretending it's instant. But it is something that we need to strive with with great um, conviction that we need to work towards, mm. right? Now, reconciliation is a different thing. Mm. Reconciliation is that the relationship is now at peace. Mm. And we can see that. So in um, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, is a great passage that talks about how we have been reconciled with God mm. through the blood of Jesus. Um, and the big description is there, now we have peace with God. Mm. So uh, reconciliation leads to a relationship of peace. Mm. So in, are we reconciled? The, the the follow-up question could be, well, I don't know, are we at peace? Mm. Could could I and and remember what the the legacy of the word peace is in the Bible, that shalom word? Yeah. Um and, and what Joseph's brothers weren't prepared to say any word of peace to him when he was willing to look after their peace. Can you wish peace on that person and do it from the heart? 
Um, um, and can they do that to you? Mm. Well, well, that is a, a reconciled relationship. Yeah. Yep. And we see that reconciled relationships are costly. Yes. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so even in that, like for, for Joseph to be reconciled to his brothers, it was costly for him because he had to actually – he was the one that was owning mm. the hurt of that they had caused him. Yes. Uh, but he was willing to do that to actually bring about that, that then bringing together of those two groups. And I think as someone who it's actually much easier to talk about it from when you've been in the position of when you're the one that's caused offence. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you are genuinely repentant for it and you've said sorry and when the other person actually is able to – they take the offence – and they take it away and they don't say that what you did didn't matter. They don't say that it didn't hurt, but they're actually willing to own that pain so that together you can then walk forward and move forward together. In peace, yeah. In peace. In peace. And I think and some of the best relationships I've got have been they're not the best because they had but there's something about the when you've actually realized that oh I've caused hurt and you're able to actually reconcile like ap- apologize and repent and mm. And ask for forgiveness and that forgiveness can be accepted and then you actually can build from that position to move forward. Some of the best relationships I've got are the ones that have actually had Been that where we've, that we've had to go through that but then there is a tightness and a – yeah, and it, it's a beautiful example of the gospel and the way that that then outworks with us. And I always think that one of the challenges is, is when the Bible says is as far as it is possible with you, mm. live at peace with one another. Yes, and that does recognise the whole thing of, I can't make you be at peace with me. No. But as far as it is it's possible, power, yeah. I need to be the one that is willing to be the peacemaker. So the state of reconciliation is not in within the control of mm. one person. Forgiveness is is mm. the something that you can do. You can and you must forgive. Um, for you and and with a view to being at peace with the person you're forgiving. Mm. Now, um, and so that is that you you have got an attitude of a desire for reconciliation. Where we sometimes get things wrong is we assume in this broken world that a reconciled relationship is exactly what it was. Mm. Whereas, you know, there's a, there's a, the picture you get in, in heaven of the lamb who was slain mm. standing in front of his people. And, and you think we will never forget that there was something that, We'll never be allowed to forget that there wasn't. There was something that meant that he's bearing the wounds for all of eternity. Yeah. It is his glory, and we love him for it. But it is a reconciled mm. relationship that is not ignorant of the hurt that was caused mm. before. So, so, um, and in the imperfect life that we have now, the reconciled relationship may not look exactly the same as the relationship mm. that first broke. Are you at peace? Yes, it is reconciled. Um, is the relationship the same? I'll finish with one. One small example. In a previous church that I was in, there was a man who was engaged and living with his uh, fiancée um, and he was violent to her. Uh, they separated and with the encouragement of the church to keep them apart. Um, he said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it, it was all wrong. And um, and then was basically there was a dot, dot, dot going, well, well, then she should come back. And we were going, no, we're not. We're not going to encourage her to come back. Apart from, you know, you, 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 um, uh, she can accept your apology and not come back into the relationship because she doesn't feel safe in it. Mm. And that's, 
Even so, she goes, I want, I wish peace for you. I hope you go have a good life. Um, I accept your apology, but no, I'm not going to walk back into that relationship. So they can be reconciled without the relationship being exactly what it was. Yeah. And and that's an important distinction that we make and that we mustn't force it. The, the reconciliation is not just the remaking of what was. It's actually the healing of the of, of a relationship such that there is peace. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is it great when that, those things do happen? Yes. But there, there is that, that can be a journey, a journey that involves trust, a, a, a journey that involves proof of repentance and demonstrate over the time, or it might just be that ship sailed. Um, go in peace, but but our, our friendship or whatever else it is, is is probably just not going to be the same. So hopefully that's helped um, with that question. Um, so uh, I've been Dave. I've been Mandy. Join us again uh, next week as we continue our journey in Genesis. We come to the penultimate uh, of our sermons on chapters 48 and 49. Uh, Mike will be preaching uh, during the day and we'll also be hearing from Josh at some of our congregations. 